Welcome back to Episode 6 of Equanimity. When Mahek Gidwani was 12 years old, she, in her own words, stumbled onto drugs. By 13, she was taking ketamine throughout the week. By the time she graduated high school, she was smoking marijuana multiple times a day. It had gotten to a point where I was such a mess already, and the marijuana was acting like some sort of solution. Like to the point where I couldn't leave my room without smoking. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. So the thought of not having it, like the little bit of pain that it was still alleviating, just felt unimaginable. By 19, her family checked her into rehab. Mehek's story is a powerful one. But once we start getting into the layers of it, you start to realize how universal addiction actually is. I see addiction manifest in everyone, in really subtle ways. And I want to take away, as I say this, stigma, blame, and judgment. Alcohol, sugar, technology, sex, anything that has control over us that we bargain with, normalize even. So in this conversation, we look at the humanness of addiction. How does it start and how can it stop? For me, the best part of Mahek's story is her ability to turn her pain into purpose. She's training to be an addiction counselor that not only takes her lessons from rehab to help others, but taps into the wisdom of meditation, yoga, and holistic healing to provide us with a new roadmap to recovery, one that I think we can all benefit from. Mahek. Hey. Welcome to Equanimity. Thank you. So we came across your story because Trish and I, Trishna, producer of Equanimity, we're really looking into the idea of addiction and the power of addiction and kind of the role that addiction plays in a lot of people's lives. Mm. We came across your story, which is an incredibly powerful one. You started taking drugs when you were 12 years old. Mm -hmm. You ended up going to rehab at 19. Mm. And then now you are training to sort of give back and learn from your experiences as uh, addiction counselor or addiction counselor in training. But how did your story with addiction start? Yeah, it's funny looking back now. And I want to say I'm curious. I'm curious how you got interested in this topic of addiction. Do you want to share? Yeah, sure. I think so. The whole purpose of this podcast is equanimity. Okay. And this idea that you ride through life and you're supposed to come at it with a bit of mental clarity. Or the the goal is that you should be coming through life. It's a nice way to do it. Exactly. (laughs) It's a really great goalpost to ride through life with stability, mental Mm. clarity. And as we're exploring things that inhibit us from doing that, addiction Mm -hmm. being one of them. Addiction as like a manifestation of something that prevents you from getting that Mm. mental clarity, that stability. I hear that completely. And when you say mental clarity, I think direction, purpose, sort of anchor points to carry one through. Or even just that sense of being able to think clearly in any given moment. 100%. Which, yeah, I hear addiction completely clouds and removes. So... Going back to my story, it's funny looking back now because it's been like 10, 11 years since I went to rehab. You grew up in Hong Kong. I grew up in Hong Kong, born and raised, little Indian kid who went to an international school in Sha Tin. And I was surrounded by mostly Chinese kids from the beginning. And I tell this story because I feel... I feel it's important in the overall picture. When I went to kindergarten, most of the kids spoke Cantonese. And from this like three, four-year-old place, I already felt a sense of not belonging. I felt like an outsider. And very quickly, I felt like something was wrong with me. And then I'm moving into primary school. I have a clear memory of myself. I think I was four years old and I have a picture too. I had really long hair. I'm wearing this t-shirt that goes up to my knees. And what I see in that photo is this child who's like really completely alive and who's in that place of joy and innocence and beauty. That kind of that's kind of the last memory of myself in that state. And then in primary school, I became a shy kid who was trying to hide and who was embarrassed, hiding away because you were bullied. Yes. So I was bullied in, in primary school. I was called Harry Eddie. 
I remember feeling embarrassed about the food that I brought to school. And yeah, I was a brown kid who is still pretty hairy. There was hair all over my body. Yeah, I was just different. And you really felt it. Yeah. I really felt it. I really yeah. absorbed all those things. And like, I guess they say right before the age of seven, like we have no filter between the outside world and our internal dialogue. Whatever's happening on the outside, we kind of just absorb it as truth. So I did. Yeah. As a kid. And then that becomes and became the foundation for what was to come next for my mindset and self-perception. Which was? Someone who felt not good enough. And that's still a message I carry today. And I know that's it's a very universal message. I'm not good enough. And at that time, it was I'm ugly, I'm less than, and I'm this dirty, smelly... Indian kid, which is really sad because I so don't feel that way today. Yeah. Yeah. It was the truth back then. So you're in primary school. You're bullied. Mm. What comes next? And then I was moving into secondary school and I said to myself, this is going to change. It was a sense of kind of like taking agency of my life. I'm not going to be bullied anymore. I'm not going to let this happen to me. And so the solution that my 12-year-old self knew at that time was... I'm going to become cool. I had, I have two older sisters. One was nine years older and the other was 13. And I think I got that sense and impression from them. And I also picked up a lot of ideas from them of what cool meant. I mean, to get a sense, I was 12. My oldest sister was 25. So I was already living in a household where she was partying. So cool to me looked like I guess probably the same thing as it looks like to a lot of people. Today, cool means looks like someone who's thriving at work, in their relationships, and who's partying hard and having a good time. And so as a 12-year-old, it meant it meant hanging out with the cool kids. Who are they? People who are like outside of my school, people who are a little rebellious and naughty. And then I stumbled into drugs. Yeah, by accident. But how does one stumble <laughs> into drugs by accident at 12 years old? Like, take me there. Yeah. So you're 12 years old. And I'm playing with this crowd, right, that I think are the cool kids. Some of them are older, like 15, 16. They're skater kids. Half of them are, most of them are not from my school. And so the story of the first time is I was in Festival Walk on a Saturday afternoon. Festival Walk is a mall in Hong Kong, a shopping mall. And my friends were sitting in this stairwell. And that day, it felt like they'd been there forever. And I was bored out of my mind and I was thinking, what are they doing in there? And I was quite a like shy, quiet, reserved kid who really didn't have access to my voice, to their voice at that time. So after a little bit, I like I pluck up enough courage to walk into the stairwell. And the plan is I say, what are you guys doing? I'm bored. Let's get out of here. Let's do something. And in that moment, one of my friends, he puts his sleeve in my mouth. And the next thing I know is it feels like I'm looking through a fisheye lens and I'm hearing bells and everything's going topsy-turvy for about like three to five minutes. And as I come back, I hear laughter around me and I'm drooling out of the side of my mouth. And in that moment, I was the center of attention, right? The shy, quiet kid who has found it really hard to fit in and who's been different and bullied and hurt. And then I was part of the crew. And not only that, I was the center of the crew. And so what I learned was um, what we had used was a muscle relaxant spray called Wari, which was readily sold in Watson's at the time. It was $60. And that's what they had bought and we were using. And that kind of kickstarted it all. Yeah, that was the first taste. Mm. And then about a month later, we were, I remember it was like Christmas, we were at my friend's house, the one who had put the sleeve in my mouth, who's, who honestly, he had a beautiful heart. He really did. So we were at his house and then the muscle spray was there again. And I think I thought to myself, like, I've, I've done this before. Yeah, no big deal. Yeah, three to five minutes. It was kind of cool. And I really enjoyed the social reward. So I did it again. 
And then I would say over the next year, I think towards the end of that year, I was doing it after school two or three times. And then I remember the first time I did it alone at home. I was watching TV and it was dark and I pulled it out of my drawer and I remember thinking to myself, there's something wrong that I just did this alone. Hmm. That's like a lot of emotional awareness for a 12-year-old already, Mm. though. Thank you. So you start doing this muscle relaxant Mm. alone and then how does it escalate? Yeah. So shortly after that, I went to a shisha bar. It all makes me laugh in retrospect, just to yeah. imagine myself. There. Also, because you're like 12 years old, <laughs> 13, 13 now, 13, yeah, going to a shisha right? bar. Like, yeah. it's, so, I, it's so hard to fathom. It is. But not at the same time. Not at the same time. Yeah. And in that moment... It, it sound, seemed totally normal. Exactly. And I guess like it being Hong Kong, it's a lot less hard to fathom. And so I was with four of my friends who were the same age as me, and... Uh, we go into the bathroom. We go into this tiny bathroom, which was all black. And then there's this white powder. And I remember one of my friends quite forcefully saying, just take the powder, just do it. And I felt a bit of fear in that moment. And I was protesting, but I wanted to be part of this crew. Like yeah. they, I had love. Yeah, I had love for them. I had belonging. I was part of something. So as stereotypical as it is, you know, it's always that thing parents and teachers say, oh, how do people get involved with drugs? Peer pressure. But it's true. I'm sad to say there is some truth to it. For sure. And that wasn't the only thing. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was the fact that you wanted to belong. It was such a big part of what you felt you couldn't get as a child. Completely. Completely. I was trying to resolve a need in some other way. And another kid who had that need fulfilled already wouldn't even be at the shisha bar. Yeah. So I took the powder and it was ketamine. Yep. <laughs> and then the next three or four, yeah, three so or th- so years look like me snorting ketamine and going out to clubs. This is a 13-year-old yeah, taking exactly. ketamine. Exactly. And at 13, we were going to these underage parties. And so I was taking ketamine. Yeah, almost weekly towards the end of that. And in the same sort of progression, it went from a weekly Saturday night thing to starting to happen a few times during the week. And again, I had the similar moment of asking myself, one, like Wednesday, what am I doing? Like, I don't even really like this. I didn't want to go. What's going on here? And then... In the, in the similar pattern, the next thing that came into my life was marijuana. Mm. And I switched from ketamine to drinking more and smoking weed. And it really felt something really fit about weed. It felt like the solution, quote unquote, in that moment of my life. It felt like I don't need to be in a club. I can be at home playing video games. This is so much more chill. And I had all the justification of... Yeah, like, it seems yeah. a bit better. Like, yeah. oh, I'm, like, now going off ketamine, and mm. it's cool, it's fine. Weed, mm. light, mm. not a big deal. Yeah. Basically legal around the world now. Exactly. And funny story, when my dad finally caught me, those were the words I said to him, which are insane now, but I literally said to him, this is the best of it. The worst is already over, I told him. I know it's delusional, but I told him I was doing Ket and I've stopped all that now. And don't worry about this stuff. It's pretty chill. It's getting legal around the world. It's it's no big deal. How bad was your marijuana (sighs) usage? Yeah. So in the last year of high school, I was smoking before school, during school, one or two times during school, after school. I was coming home with my eyes completely bloodshot. And, you know, it was it was obvious to my parents at that point. I was not communicative at dinner and I was really withdrawn into myself. So that was the end of high school. And I kind of just graduated. I just slipped by. And then it was really my last year of university where I had left my family home and I had convinced myself that they were being really old school 
and it was just pot and they were the problem. And that if I was alone and I didn't have all that family stress, I was going to be able to manage it. However, the exact opposite happened and I wasn't going to class. At university? Yeah. And I couldn't sleep without it. I remember one night, like, I was told myself, okay, I'm going to go to class tomorrow. I'm not going to smoke tonight. And I was literally awake in bed until 5 a.m., at which point I was like, fuck this. And I smoked, and that was the end of that. And I was paranoid to the point where I couldn't leave my dorm room without smoking, couldn't eat without smoking. I was hallucinating. And, oh, man, and I was... I couldn't maintain relationships. I couldn't hold a conversation. There was a lot of madness and there was a deep, deep sense of self-hatred. And I was, I was dirty. I wasn't clean. I wasn't Mm -hmm. showering or taking care of myself. I was eating instant noodles all the time. And the pain was so enormous. Mm. And I guess in in a sense, it was sort of those same messages from childhood. I'm ugly, I'm not good enough, something's wrong with me, and I don't fit in. Mm. Do you remember a point during that time where you're like, oh, wow, this is, it can't get lower than this? I I thought to myself, I was looking out of my window, and I thought to myself, I've just failed university. The next plan was I'm going to probably have to sell weed, probably have to move in with my dealer, and not talk to my parents. I know. And, and these were like, you weren't even joking. Like, you really believed this? I really did. And it was kind of baffling to me in that moment. However, there was like layers of reality. Hmm. Like, I already had a friend who, a female friend in the UK, who was selling weed and not talking to her parents. Like, there was already a version of that in my reality. Yeah, like, to me, it sounds in, like a Netflix show. But actually, it's really like... You could see it. I could see it. It was already in my world. And it's so heartbreaking. I was really sad in that moment at the thought of losing my family. But did you feel like there was no way out? Yeah, I felt like that's what I had to do. Like they just weren't going to get it. And I felt like the choices I made at 12 meant that I had no choice. That's interesting. So did you know that you were addicted? Yeah. So at like 17, my parents had caught me red-handed After like a lot of accusations and like trying to accuse me that something was going on and and wanting me to admit it. So they finally caught me red handed. And then I said that crazy thing to dad. This is the best of it. And they had taken me to a therapist and we had an intervention after having had an intervention at home already. And they were really trying. They were really trying. And so after that intervention, (laughs) I had a conversation with the therapist where I was like considering going to rehab. And I said to her, I said to her, I was like, okay, will they let me smoke one joint at the end of the day? You're like bargaining. I was bargaining. Exactly. And she said no. And to me, and at that point, it was like completely unacceptable. And I'll tell you why. Because it had gotten to a point where... I was such a mess already and the marijuana was acting like some sort of solution. Like to the point where I couldn't leave my room without smoking. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. So the thought of not having it, like the little bit of pain that it was still alleviating just felt unimaginable. It's like living your life with a giant migraine and never having access to any medicine to deal with it. Yes, that's a beautiful analogy. And I want to like times a hundred there, maybe a thousand. Wow. And some part of me was, well, protecting the drug because it was a solution. And I thought, I genuinely thought I needed it. And I was scared of a reality without it. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds incredibly scary. It is. Especially for the fact that you're at this point 17. Yeah. 17, 18, 19. Like, yeah. It's like that whole, it's a very young period of your life to have to deal with such deep feelings of Mm. anxiety and fear and Mm. so crippling. Yeah. So how did you realize then there's a way out or there's, Mm. this is addiction. So it really felt like me against my, the world at that point. So, (laughs) so my family, they drop me off at a rehab after I fail uni, they fly to the UK 
They tell me we're going to a doctor. My sister came into my house the night before and she packed the suitcase and we drive to this, this rehab. We get there and I go in to see the therapist and I don't really know what's going on. Yeah. I talk to her. I guess she's like taking an assessment of my mental state and what's going on with me. And I come out and I see the suitcases, my suitcases next to the door. And at that point, I realized. Mm. And so there in that moment, we have another argument. There's some more bargaining and fighting. Yeah, like you don't even understand. Like, what are you doing? To yeah, me? like I'll stop. Yeah. And f- I got to the point where I was like, just give me the weekend. Yeah. I can laugh at myself. <laughs> no, but I, I, I think it's like I can yeah. imagine it. So so they left. They they dropped you at rehab. Yeah. And, and this, you're in the UK at this I'm point. I'm in the UK. Like, and we've driven... We've driven hours down from, we've driven from Birmingham to South London. I like Surrey. So I have no clue where I am, how we got there, where the train station is. They have my passport. I They have the money. They have phone. They have everything. And I remember feeling like a little kid. But I mean, I want to go to your parents because yeah. that's also incredibly tough for sort of conservative immigrant parents to have to deal with this reality of drugs, addiction, mm. and then coming to this resolve that, oh, someone else has yeah. to cure my child and it can't be me. I think that's that piece there in the end is particularly challenging. It's because it's basically like your job to mm. take care and, you know, be the caregiver to your child. So I can imagine it being especially difficult to have to give that up. The amount of trust they have to have in that moment in whatever facility they're sending their very vulnerable in the middle of like, nowhere psychotic. England when you are child yeah who can't take care 19 of themselves years at this old point. terrifying and I'm sure there's like some layers of feeling like a failure I'm sure it's so it was so deep for them and like you said for them two people that have no history of drug use no knowledge of it whatsoever that grew up in India moved to Hong Kong, are like now living in a world where like their children are wearing short skirts and going to Lan Kwai Fong and getting pissed drunk. And like I threw up in my dad's car at one point. Ugh. The, my first blackout. You know, like, honestly, it's a fine it's so, line between what I think is so it's normal. normal and weird. Yeah. yeah, which is, I think, absolutely it's, ridiculous. It seems like... I think it's sad that this is norm. That's the thing. That's, I think, the scary part about For addiction like, yeah. is that the building blocks to it seem so normal. Mm. I mean, okay. ketamine at 13? Is that pro- Okay, sorry. <laughs> like, unfortunately, not normal. But the, the other thing, the other warning signs of, you know, youth being blackout and partying, that almost in a weird way is normal. It is the reality today. Most kids, most young adults have that experience. But from your experience, what is that line between recreationally experimenting and, you know, having fun, pushing the limits, being a rebel, cool kid, Mm. and then going into addiction? Good question. Okay, so the the definition that my teachers offer are addiction is any... It's any substance of behavior that causes negative consequences that you no longer have this idea of control over. And then there's a huge debate that happens within oneself, that happened within me of, do I still have agency and choice here? And it took, right, those two years of me, there was two years of me experimenting, of just trying to smoke on weekends, just trying to have one spliff, just smoke with certain friends on certain nights in certain places, not smoke at all, just drink. Only drink once every two weeks. Like there was this whole negotiation that happened within myself where I tried to control and manage. And then ultimately I got to a place of surrender that happened in rehab with the assistance of professionals and other people who were reflecting the same experience to me of, no, we've gotten into a place where control and choice is no longer in our power. And I think that's where it becomes addiction. Mm. And addiction can happen, well, with anything. For sure. Yeah. And the more extreme versions of it are 
gambling, sex, drugs, pornography. Extreme because it's hurting yourself and hurting others. Because it's so others. damaging mm-hmm. to one's life and well-being and the people around them. Right. But you see addiction manifest. I see addiction manifest in everyone in really subtle ways. And I want to take away, as I say this, stigma, blame, and judgment. So as I got sober and stopped drinking and using, I saw in myself all these subtle layers of dependency and like doing things that were kind of harmful to me, but I was doing them subconsciously almost, like in a way that part of me didn't want to be doing it, but I was still doing it. There was that part of unmanageability and not being really able to stop or hold myself back. So the more subtle addictions, yeah, are technology, sugar, shopping, eating, and these things that we all have and we all do. And what I saw in my own experience is that like those subtle nuances were the same in my version of addiction. When I got to that place with drugs and alcohol, they were just, it was the same patterns, just a lot more amplified. And the consequences were a lot more significant. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. It's, you know, what you're addicted to can make the addiction so much more evident and worse. Mm. But that doesn't make addiction less prevalent in most of us. Yeah. Like most of us actually are dealing with addiction without even calling it addiction or realizing that it is addiction. (laughs) When you got to rehab, Mm. though, Mm. what did you feel? At first, I was really, really confused. And I was still in withdrawal, so my mind was, like, so not functioning for the first week or so. It was really hard to focus genuinely and, like, cognitively get a sense of what was happening. And then besides that, there was a lot of fear. I was 19 years old in a country I didn't know. I was just a young, scared child. And then my therapist, he outright said to me, Mahek, you have an addiction. And what that means is you can't drink or use drugs ever again. Those early days were fear and just like a childlike state. And then eventually, like, I softened in and it was really beautiful. It was really wonderful. I was surrounded by a community of people who were in the exact same place as me, but with very different circumstances in their life. We had all got into this place of life's an absolute mess that we can't function or handle. And we're in this place of like powerlessness with one substance or the other. Like life had hit a rock bottom. Even though we were all different ages and from different walks of life, we shared this same theme, the same predicament. So what I got there was what I was looking for from day one. I got a sense of belonging and acceptance and community and love. And communal support. Like, we were walking through this together. And what else I got was I got therapy and introspection. I got really beautiful, healthy food. And I got self-growth, ultimately. And spirituality. That's Mm. what they gave me. And was part of the prescription for how one heals and recovers from addiction. Which is? Which is, or the solution that they offered me was a 12-step program. So... I was given Narcotics Anonymous, which was a community of people in the same place as me where we did this mutual sharing and support and connection to create accountability with one another. Like, if <laughs> if you know that next week you're going to a group where nobody eats sugar, and if you eat sugar, you have to tell all of them. And if you don't go... There, there's enough love in that room that they're going to start calling you and asking you where you are. Yeah, it's accountability. Yeah. You know, you said it really nicely. It's like belonging. All human beings want mm. is belonging. That's we just really want, beautiful. we're so tribal. We just want to feel yeah. like we belong in the communities that mm. we're part of or born into. Yeah. And, and feel accepted for who and what we really are. Right. And at that time, what rehab gave you was belonging. Yeah. This is a lot for a 19-year-old to go through. <laughs> this is a You're lot. You're still baffled. I'm, I'm baffled <laughs> because I know 19-year-olds. And I like it's it's a lot of like introspection. Yeah. That, well, I mean, yeah. to be honest, I guess 
we all should be going through this at a young age. It, it shouldn't actually be baffling. It shouldn't be normal to me process. that a 19-year-old is throwing up in their <laughs> yeah, dad's exactly. car, but not interest, being introspective. Exactly. Yeah. And today, introspection is my bread and butter. Like, it's it's my game. I love it. And hence, I'm doing it constantly throughout the day. When you look back at that time, mm. what did you learn about addiction? Mm. I learned so much. I would say some of the first big lessons were I learned not to judge people. I learned that like that park bench alcoholic, like the homeless guy on the street who's drinking way too much, me and him were in the same place. The difference was mom and dad were rich and they could send me to rehab and I could spend 13 months like with all this help and support and getting better. But me and that dude are the same. So that's the first thing I learned, like a huge amount of humility. And then I was surrounded by these people that I would have never interacted with if I wasn't in that situation. So I'm so grateful for that gift. What did you learn about what causes addiction? Well, that process of reflection for me started a few years ago of what caused this to happen in the first place. Ultimately, the question was driven by how can I heal today? And so I like that a lot because mm. it's not why did it happen, but mm. it's future looking. How do mm. I get better? Mm. And how do I help other people get better? Because then I trained as a recovery coach. And so the question became all the more important of like, if I can understand the causes, then I can understand the solutions. So for me, ultimately, drugs and alcohol served a purpose. It alleviated shyness. It gave me a sense of confidence. It helped me feel comfortable in my skin and it, it helped me be like at a party and be that confident, lively, funny person that people could interact with. The version of myself I really wanted to be. It gave me that quick access route. And then the things that my heart so deeply wanted to be accepted, to feel a part of, and well, just to be loved. So alcohol and drugs gave me a solution that I didn't know how to access on my own. And other things that it solved for me were like anxiety and emotional regulation. I didn't know how to do those. And most of us, like none of us have been taught that. The people who are between whatever, 30 and upwards, none of us have been taught how to do that in our childhood. So alcohol and drugs helped me self-regulate because I didn't have those skills and tools that most of us don't have. And in my adulthood, I've been learning how to have, how to do. So I want to speak more to this, though. What causes addiction? So through my studies, there's a physician, a doctor, Dr. Gabor Maté, who's a medical physician and has worked with many, many, many people who have experienced addiction. So what he came to see through his work was that trauma is at the root, was at the root of all addiction. So I started looking back at my life. So if trauma is at the root of all addiction, where's my trauma? So my first barriers to this like exploration of what is my trauma, first, I think I had the typical perspective of if I have trauma, it has to be really significant. It has mm. to be like sexual abuse. Yeah. Otherwise like so I don't extreme. have it. Yeah. And nothing like that happened in my life, so I obviously don't have it. And as I studied and learned, that's not the definition at all. Mm. It's basically these tiny events where our child self wasn't able to understand and emotionally cope with what was going on. That little memory gets stuck somewhere in our body, and it is an unresolved trauma. It's really as simple as that. And so for many of us, and for me, what it really is, as I can look back, is many of these tiny little circumstances all piled in together that created a state of discomfort where I couldn't manage that discomfort myself. And so at that point, I could have been taught tools like yoga, meditation, cognitive behavioral therapy as that little 12 year old, like emotional self-acceptance, understanding that those kids were that way and were saying those things, but they didn't have to be true. And I didn't have to believe them or internalize them. 
I could have been taught all these skills. However, that just wasn't our reality, global reality at that time. No one to blame, no one to shame, just the state of how it was in whatever, 2000. And so instead, what I had easy, quick access to was worry and was alcohol. And guess what? It did the same thing. It emotionally regulated. It sorted it out for me. And so thus that became my solution. And they say, you know, teenagers' minds, brains are very malleable. And they rewire much more quickly to the reward systems. So alcohol very quickly and drugs very quickly got rewired in my brain personally as the solution. That's so interesting. Hmm. It's so interesting to break it down so scientifically, too. Hmm. Thank you for validating that. I'm grateful that I've... Was it, have been able or was able to articulate and understand it to this degree through like years of curiosity and questioning. You are on this journey. Yeah. You are now training to be an addiction counselor. Correct. How are you taking this path and mm. things that you've learned in a way to dictate how you want to help people get through what you went through? So I think in like year seven of my recovery, and this is how my, my life is mapped out. I think of it in years of sobriety. So in year seven of my recovery, I went to India and I did a teacher training with a, a man called Tommy Rosen. He's been abstinent from drugs and alcohol for like 30 plus years now. And he's on the same path of recovery and discovery. And I was really attracted to what this man had, like the, the glow and the light and the kind of like joy that he was radiating. And I was in a stuck place where I had like grown as much as I could in the methods I was using in the 12 steps and therapy and all this like mental work. Like I kind of hit a limit, but I was still experiencing, well, a different version of pain, a different version of addiction at that point. And so I found Tommy's book and he says that like yoga was his solution. And I'm sitting there thinking like, dude, I've done yoga. And I don't have what you have, and I don't know what you're talking about. So, so I went to India. And so Tommy introduced me to Kundalini yoga and meditation. And he introduced me to the power of pranayama, my breath, mantra, chanting, movement. He introduced me to the infinite pharmacy that lives within me, the power of healthy food and clean water. And this combination of things, oh my God, it blew open my life in exactly the way I needed it to. Tell me more. Yeah. So today, as someone who, I think that teacher training was five years ago, and I have since taught Kundalini yoga and meditation. And as I've taught it, you know, I, I learn more deeply like how this thing works. So Kundalini yoga works on the energy in the body. So here we have a hippie word that has taken me a long time to understand. The body has an energetic field, an energetic frequency. And Tommy, he likes to say that like every emotion connects to a different energetic frequency. Fear connects to one vibration and love and generosity and abundance and gratitude connect to different energetic frequencies. And so as we do these practices, pranayama is breath work right? So the breath is the only part of our autonomic nervous system, our automated nervous system that we have control over. So the breath is one tool that we can use to slow down our physiology. Slowing down the breath can slow down your heart rate. It can slow down the speed at which the mind is operating. It can bring that mental clarity. So it's this one tool that we have we're in constant relationship with. And like as we practice bringing awareness to it, we have the ability to regulate our body, regulate our nervous system and anxiety. And then the breath, it carries prana on it, which is life force, chi, energy. One thing Tommy's really keen on, getting high off our own supply. So what I learned was that drugs and alcohol all they're doing 
is that they're triggering like large amounts of the hormones that already exist in our body. So dopamine, serotonin, they're not adding anything new. They're not giving us anything that we don't already have. They're just sending off and kickstarting these hormones that exist in our body. So yoga, breathwork, mantra, practice, all these things, they work together to stimulate, to strengthen our own ability to activate and release those hormones on our own. So when I came into recovery, I was in deep, deep depression and I was completely unable to sleep. So I, my body was relying on drugs and alcohol for its happy hormones and its relaxation hormones. It had basically lost the ability or that connection. It had lost the wiring to release it on its own, not the ability, because I still had the ability. And as I came off it, the withdrawal is the pain of the time that it takes for the mind to realize, oh, we're not getting this from outside anymore. And then I learned all these tools. And here's the, here's the downside. Here's the truth. It takes work. It takes work. We all know meditation is good for us and exercise is good for us and eating well. But we don't do it because the rewards don't come as quickly as they do with a piece of cake or a drink. Like I don't feel instantly relaxed from meditating from 10 minutes. I feel relaxed after a month or three months. And the gift is by doing it for three months, I'm strengthening my body's own ability to continually do it rather than getting dependent on something else that I need more and more of to create the same effect. There's so many interesting things here that you've taught me. I guess I could, if I were to distill it, it's really like two pillars. The first being that trauma mm. is kind of a lot smaller than we mm. build it out to be. There, yeah. there are these moments of, you know, hurt, pain that compound mm. in us and how you release it is like everyone's choice, but it needs to yeah. be released. And the second part is that your body has the tools to deal with it mm. on its own. It's just that we don't necessarily activate it. We have access to this heritage that we haven't necessarily used because drugs, alcohol, sugar, it's a very quick fix yeah. to releasing that. But the problem, I guess, with those things is the dependency. Yeah, and the long-term consequence and harm that it does to our body and our overall state of being. And how beautifully put together. Thank you for reflecting. And I think that what's even more amazing is that you're able to then, in the position that you are, mm. connect those dots Having been an addict, having gone through the recovery and the journey and, well, still recovering. Yeah. Everyone is. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You're now in a position where you're formulating your mindset of how you can help other people go through addiction hmm. with this heritage. 100%. Modern marketing is just really powerful, right? They sold alcohol and cigarettes and sugar really hard. But we didn't sell we didn't sell all the wisdom of Chinese medicine and Eastern heritage and Ayurveda and yoga as hard. I guess because I mean pain is so universal. Yeah. Pain never was not a thing. True. We've always had pain in our that lives. That makes a lot of sense. So of course we came up with a solution to it. Do you see this distinction in addiction recovery as well that mm. the addiction that recovery that you went through was quite a western methodology 100%. and now perhaps you've unlocked an eastern methodology towards addiction recovery yes and through my own experience so kind of what this takes me to i think is dharma or purpose and i i heard it said the other day that purpose is basically our passion utilized to help someone else and it's it's amazing that like the kind of fulfillment that is amplified when, and I get when I use what I know to help someone else, it just like multiplies in magnitude. So really for me, ultimately, this whole journey has been about 
personal development and personal growth. And so today, my version of addiction recovery will only be what has helped me the most. So it started in those early years. Like, like I said, I had a very Western-centric recovery approach where I was in a residential treatment center. I was introduced to the 12 steps of Narcotics Anonymous. I was doing therapy and there was a lot of psychology influence. And those were the first five years. And then I hit a wall and then I was introduced to all the gifts of Eastern medicine, like homeopathy and all these ancient, ancient wisdoms of yoga and holistic healing. So I would love to bring these two worlds together. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, Western medicine ha- definitely has a place because you got to a point where it was so bad, like you needed mm. to just get out of it. Mm. And really, like you said, rehab gave you that. They, mm. It gave you the community. It gave you the like shock and the tools that you needed to pull out of that really dark place. Mm. The but quick support. The qu- Not even that quick. Not quick at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> really, but support yeah. and a, a way to do that. But what's interesting to me is that it wasn't just go to rehab tick Mm, yep which is common misconception yeah it's really was go to rehab to get to a point where you can start now doing the work exactly and i think that's the difference between allopathic medication and these eastern well the real solution really allopathic medication really treats symptoms and it tries to do so in like Demanding the least from the patient as possible versus Eastern systems, they demand lifestyle change. And that's what really brings the solution and the sustainable health. They demand dietary change, change in our exercise and movement and mind and our community, all of it, instead of like fixing this with a pill. And then you're dependent on that pill and the pill has side effects for the rest of your life. Like that's a real place of powerlessness versus I'm in charge of my own health and my body, like you said, has the ability to heal. I just need to learn to work with it so it can start doing that because it wants to. That's its natural orientation towards health, vitality and joy and nothing else. And I guess it's maybe the nice thing about your podcast. People share new things, right, all the time. My dream right now looks like a rehab where we have Eastern and Western worlds mixed. We have yogic approach and we have the psychology Western approach. So you come in and you see an Ayurvedic specialist and we curate practices for you, diet for you based on that. And then we look at your astrology chart and we use it as a tool of self-discovery. And then you have all the traditional group therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. And then we bring in the yoga and the kundalini meditation, breathwork, and then we teach you these tools. And for me, like rehab is such a gorgeous place. People don't see it like this, right? But for me, it's like this, this period in life that most people don't take. It's this like three months out of your life where you do nothing else except work on yourself. Like what a gift and what a concentrated time of self-discovery and healing where we can really establish a platform for the rest of your life. So that's what the dream looks like right now. And it's, it's, I love it. Thank you. I love the dream so much. I genuinely (laughs) cannot wait. And I think that's, it's also like you, you know, the famous Steve Jobs quote is like, mm. you connect the dots in retrospect. Yeah. You exactly. never see what the picture looks like. And so much of your journey is that. Mm. And, you know, the fact that you had to go oh, through this, came out on the other end, had the conviction to seek for more, had the heritage to find that more. Mm. And now the compassion to give it back. Oh, my God. What a gift. Amazing. For People out there, though, what is the stigma to addiction that Um, you want to demystify? I want us to stop seeing it as an other. Like, it's something that exists within all of us. It's within our community. It's not like that is a bad kid who went the wrong way. It's like whatever we're doing together has created this, and how can we treat it? And that's something they really try and communicate to families when they come into rehab. This is a family illness. That kid didn't, wasn't produced out of nowhere. It's a societal 
cultural thing that is prevalent everywhere in all walks of life, all ages, all races. And like I said earlier, like we all have, there's a humanness to it. Like we all have those moments where we're watching YouTube on our phones and like an hour goes by and we're like, oh, fuck. That's not what I meant to do with the last hour of my life, but I just did it. Yeah, it's really relatable and it's here with us. So what I learned was to see that guy on the street or that kid who's in a lot of pain as a child who's hurting and doesn't have a better solution rather than someone who's bad or wrong. It's just someone who's in a lot of pain. Probably the people in our society who are in the most pain, maybe, I don't know, um, are those who are deeply entrenched in addiction. So instead of outcasting them and then making this whole thing worse, like, I'm going to say addicts are pain in the ass. It's true. They're dishonest. They're liars. They're selfish. They're disrespectful. And I know I was. That's why I know it's true. Because the priority was I was trying to protect myself, my addiction, that I thought I needed to survive. And I was in so much pain and vulnerability. But what happened? I was shown love and acceptance and tolerance and patience. And that's where recovery came from. So, yeah. That's and the then message. you were able to breathe that love for yourself. Yeah. For yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's gushing through me all over the place onto other people. I can feel it. Amazing. I'm glad. From the 13-year-old that did ketamine mm. to the person that's in front of me today who will 100% open that holistic <laughs> rehab center, or recovery whatever, center. Whatever the dream flourishes and whatever becomes new. I can't wait to witness it. I'm so glad. Thank you so much for sharing your story and being a guest today. Thank you for being here on this journey and coming along with me and helping me through it. Addiction is a scary word, but being able to recognize you have an addiction is even scarier. It's important we don't weaponize the term because we all have addictions, some worse than others, but finding our way out takes awareness. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, follow us on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on and follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at four underscore equanimity for as in F-O-R, not the number. We'll be sharing a lot of tidbits behind the scenes and more about our upcoming conversations. But for now, that's a wrap. Catch you next time.